Julian Ledem has been in the field of data engineering for quite a long time. What is the background of Julian Ledem? Julian Ledem helped start the Parquet project, as well as the Pig project, the Arrow project. He's worked on Heron, he's worked on Kudu, he's worked on Tez. So Julian Ledem is one of these guys like Flavio Junquera or perhaps like Ben Hindman or Matei Zaharia, basically one of these people who has contributed a momentous amount of technology to the open source data world and just has essentially universal respect. There are several of these people who have been around data engineering, let's say since the cloud era days, like early cloud era days, and they've done so much work that the entire industry just just reveres them and, and views them as as artists. So Julian Ledem is one of those people. Julian Ledem is, is a fantastic guest. What is Julian Ledem doing today? He's working on Datakin. So what is Datakin? Datakin is data lineage. If you've listened to any of the shows we've done with Pachyderm, for example, Pachyderm is, is a data lineage company. There's a few other data lineage-related solutions. So data lineage is something that's really, really hard to solve. What is data lineage? Data lineage is like, what's the history of your data set? So like, why is data lineage important? Let's say you're building a product that issue lo- issues loans. If you're issuing loans and you you reject somebody for a loan, if that rejection turns out to look discriminatory, then you may get investigated for discriminatory lending practices. If that happens, you want to be able to defend yourself. If you want to defend yourself, you need data lineage in many cases. So imagine imagine being interrogated by somebody, by a, by some sort of loan regulation officer, and the, and the loan regulation officer says to you, okay, look, Jared got rejected for the loan that he applied for from your machine learning loan giver system. You know, what gives? What, why is that? What, what happened? And you say, well, you know, it's, it's actually just the data. Like, it's not us. We, you know, we're just training our algorithms, and, 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 and you can take a look at our training data. We just have biased training data. You want to be able to prove that. And, and that's going to be like a f- big problem in the future. So data lineage is basically this foundational level engineering problem. And w- so why is data lineage hard? Can't you just store all your data? Like, can't you just store a revision history of all your data? No, of course not. That's, that's insane. So like if you want, let's say, let's say you've got a terabyte of data and that data changes over time. Let's say you have a terabyte data set of, um, of user profiles and over time, those user profiles get updated, right? You know, you've got a bunch of updates that are coming in, CRUD operations that are changing the user profile data set. And it includes, you know, like, what kind of clothes do you wear? And, you know, what kind of hat do you wear? And colors your skin? And do you have freckles? And do you like Aerosmith? So you've got, like, this, this is big, big set of user profiles just sitting in a data set somewhere. And that data is changing over time. You're updating your profile. Let's say that's the only thing your application does. Or let's say these are user profiles of people who may or may not want loans in the future. So you've got a big set of attributes, right? Including skin color and including age, for example, including income. So you have all this data and basically your data is your user profiles and you're going to try to decide if you need to lend these people money. So you've got this this data set, you've got this uh, system that you're just trying to figure out how how to lend people money. And then one of these people asks for a loan. And you've got these machine learning models that are being trained on this data set repeatedly. Oh, maybe they also have like a like a their payback rate for loans over time. Let's say like this is a this is a high volume lending platform. So like these are people who make a who who borrow money on a regular basis. 
So you have a loan history. So over time, you have a loan history, you have a profile, you have the changes of the profile. These are the things that you would theoretically need to save. Because like you're going to continually want to run machine learning jobs, not just on the on the state of the human today, but like how the human has existed in the past. So like that's how foundational of a problem this is, because there's a big, big, big question around how can you compress across time? What is compression? Compression is the reduction in size of data through common attributes of that data. If you have repeating attributes in a data set, you can compress it. So think about it. If you've got a profile over time, probably there's a lot of repetition there. Probably if it's take if it's keeping track of, of what color hat I wear every day. And let's say there's like 300 inst- over over a year long period, let's say there's 300 instances where I wear a white hat and 65 instances where I wear a red hat. Two kinds of hats, just if you if you look at this as a time series, there's only two kinds of hats, but but the word like white hat might might get repeated 300 times, the word red hat might get repeated 65 times. You should be able to compress that, right? So you should be able to compress that information across time. That's important because otherwise your data set just blows up. So that is what Julian Ledem is working on. We barely talked about that, if I recall the conversation, but like it just gives you an idea of like what kinds of problems does Julian Ledem have a taste for? It's those kinds of problems. Julian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here. Yeah, so we've done one or two shows, I can't remember, maybe three over the years. And I think of you as somebody who is a data engineering, almost historian, because the the field of data engineering is pretty young. I think of it at least, I'm sure other people will critique me for this, but I think of the data engineering revolution as basically starting with Hadoop and HDFS and then Cloudera and all of the downstream impact of that all the way to today where you have much better data pipelines that still have tremendous problems. So why don't you give me your condensed history of the evolution of data engineering up to today? Wow, condensed. Condensed into like very, (laughs) you know, like two minutes or less. Yeah, so I guess I've been in data for more than 10 years now. So I guess maybe that apply to the time frame of this uh, of this thing. So when I started, so I was at Yahoo like more than 10 years ago. And so that was the place where the whole Hadoop ecosystem kind of started, where it started growing. And so it evolved quite a bit, right? Like back in the day, you would have HDFS, so sharing files and then using MapReduce jobs to transform things. So pretty simple tools. And I think since then it evolved quite a bit. So I think we remember there was an article by Stonebreaker, like the famous database uh, researcher about like why going back to MapReduce was doing everything wrong. And this was a huge step backwards. And in some way it was, but at the same time, it was the foundation that enabled like nowadays, there's a lot of the database principles that have been re-implemented on top of those foundations. And the Hadoop ecosystem has grown quite a bit. And even to the point that there's less and less Hadoop in it anymore, but all the projects that grow around it are still uh, very much active and a lot of things have evolved. So I think recently what you're seeing is SQL is a lot more part of the picture as well, whether it's, you know, the SQL and Hadoop are Spark SQL or the, you know, the SQL and streaming uh, that is happening or whether more 
cloud native warehouses with BigQuery and Snowflake and those kind of things. So it's become like, there's like been a huge growth. So Hadoop was very JVM oriented and now it's like, there's a lot of Python, there's a lot of SQL, there's looking at combining machine learning oriented APIs and also having a lot of analytics people or doing transformation in SQL and building dashboards for analytics. So there's lots of fragmentation of many different tools. And so one of the things we're seeing is how do we make everything work together? And so we have to figure out how to make all this work together. It's kind of a big expansion of a lot of different tooling and specialization in the field, right? Like data engineers used to be people who would write MapReduce jobs and maybe be able to contribute to Hadoop for those projects and build a platform and build a transformation. And nowadays there's a lot more specialization, like enabling people who do SQL or more math, more analytics, people who do more machine learning, people who do more platform. And so this kind of very different space than it used to be like 15 years ago, I guess. I have a counterfactual history exercise. Imagine a world in which Yahoo would have poured significant resources into in-house Hadoop-based technology that they could sell to the market. Do you think Yahoo could have been saved by focusing a ton of effort on the Hadoop ecosystem instead of kind of doing this externalization thing where they did Hortonworks? Yeah, I don't know. In some way, it was a bit, you know, they did Artonworks, but Cladera existed already at the time, right? So there were things like, it's a question of DNA. I don't think it was in, uh, like, you know, like Google, for example, at the time, you know, there was this thing, there was this joke that would go around like, oh, what do uh, two uh, Yahoo engineers talk about when they meet, right? Well, obviously, they talk about Google. And that was that was before Facebook started, like, eating uh, uh, <laughs> Yahoo's lunch. And I don't know, it's kind of a bit of company DNA. Like Yahoo was very much, and, you know, I, like I'm sure people would have different opinions. But at the time, there was a lot of different, each Yahoo product was almost its own independent little things. And even each Yahoo product in each market was its own little organization, which makes it like pretty agile in moving in each market, but not very much having a strong culture of having platforms and like Google really had like more like overarching platforms internally. And so there were things like, you know, Hadoop came out of the search organization of Yahoo. It started being used in other areas. And so you could argue that Yahoo could have been the service oriented platform, but didn't work that way, right? Really? I mean, they could have, I don't know, if that was really in the DNA of Yahoo, they were very much focused on how we make products for our users, how we build that in an agile way. And in some ways, you know, the things like, it's kind of social media, I guess is the turn that Yahoo didn't take from that, from the consumer perspective. And in that sense, like mainly Facebook took over and even Google wasn't able to compete in that area, but Google won the search area. So I guess they're fine. I don't know. It's hard to to think. I think like it was not in Yahoo's DNA to build that. And I think if they hadn't spin up, spun off Hortonworks engineers, there was a lot of demand for Hadoop commuters at the time and Cladera existed. So there was a risk that people would have left, uh, would have done other things. 
So you got into data engineering before it was even called data engineering. You were the co-author of Parquet, which is a file format for Hadoop. So you've been deeply involved in the ecosystem. And you used some of that domain expertise to work as principal architect of Dremio for a few years. Dremio has always intrigued me. I feel like Dremio got to the data engineering world at a very unique time and place. How would you describe the product vision for Dremio? Yeah, I guess, I mean, that's a better uh, question for the co-founders of Dremio. The way I got into Dremio, you know, at Yahoo, I built platforms on top of Dupe and then started contributing to the open source project in that area, in particular Pig, which led me to Twitter. And at Twitter, that's where, you know, there was the Hadoop and the Vercutica space. And that's how I got into starting the Parquet project to getting Hadoop closer to the database. And, you know, like Vertica was lower latency, but couldn't handle as much data as Hadoop could. And Hadoop was very high latency querying. And so we were trying to bridge the gap a little bit. And that's what led me into joining Dremio, right? Like, I think the Dremio vision were very much aligned in how do we make the whole data ecosystem more like a database, right? So you can use Dremio and you can query everything as if it's one federated database. And the Dremio magic lets you define views that will enable quickly querying things without having to change your model, right? So you stick Dremio in front of your data lake or all the things you may have, whether it's MongoDB or Elasticsearch or other kind of services, and it looks like one big databases, and there are things you can do in Dremio so that it becomes performant so that you can use Tableau or your BI tool directly on top of it, right? So it removes a lot of the complexity of like the typical model people have and still have is you have the data lake, but it's still very high latency. You can't really query it in an interactive way. And you push a subset of the data or some transformation of the data into more traditional warehouse where you can stick your BI tool like Tableau or Looker on top of and get visibility. So it's kind of, you know, that part of that vision, and really I'm sure that vision evolved over the year, is to really abstract out of all that complexity and make it like one database. And of course, depending on where the data is stored, the speed of response is different, but you can do things in Dremio that make things fast for your specific use case without having to have a lot of different transformations to maintain. There was this guy I interviewed from Microsoft a while ago, and he had an idea, or maybe he didn't have this idea, but he talked about this idea, the term virtual data. Have you heard that term? It sounds like it evocates several things to me, but yeah, like keep going. Yeah, well, I mean, so this idea that he really kept emphasizing as virtual data is essentially the idea that you build some kind of indexing around all the data in your entire data world, and then you have various access patterns that allow you to access that data more efficiently. And I always thought of a Dremio as kind of a virtual data company where you're supposed to basically use, like Dremio offers you this middleware system Mm -hmm. that makes it easier to access like heterogeneous data from lots of different sources. Yeah, that's right. So the first aspect is like federated, right? You can query the data where it is into one SQL engine and you could join your MongoDB table with your 
S3 dataset if you want. But of course, this is limited by the performance of the underlying storage. And so Dremio virtualizes you know, this whole like indexing, uh, you could call it indexing or projections or different type of rewriting the data internally to make it easier to query. It's all abstracted out. Like it's all virtualized. Like people don't need to know of what transformation happened under the hood to make things more efficient and more like, you know, lower latency queries. Okay. So back in 2015, 2016, 2017, I was thinking that the future of data engineering was we've got these data lakes, we've got these streaming systems, we've got Kafka, and all the action is happening in the streaming systems. We're streaming all the production data through Kafka. We're reacting to it. We're doing Hadoop jobs and and Spark jobs and Apache Heron jobs, Apache Storm things on top of all this moving data. I thought this was the future. And then it turns out that the future is actually you put everything in a data warehouse and just do whatever you want with it. Why did that happen? Or was that just a detour? Are we on our way to like better data lake support and more interactive systems? I think... The proportion of streaming is still increasing. Like people use streaming more and more and it used to be, you know, a few percent of their jobs would be streaming and it's growing to, I forgot, someone was giving me number recently, like 10, 20% of the jobs of the logic in the data analytics is streaming. I think both are useful. I don't think we're going to replace batch processing entirely with streaming, they're different and they're complementary. And probably what will happen over time is like those different engines will be less different, right? There, you can see a lot of unification in the batch versus streaming world, like Flink, Beam, Spark, uh, they all look at being uh, streaming and batch platforms. And in a lot of ways, depending how your streaming job is defined, you can rerun it in batch as well and make it run faster if you want to run it on historical data. I think some of the aspects, those things are, they're different beasts in some way, right? The way you use streaming is you want to have low latency dashboard being updated, but you still need a warehouse and being able to do an analysis. And because you may want... As a data scientist, you might want to look at the past six months of data and you might want to look at the data and, oh, we need to figure out what they are, the outliers. And then once we figured out what the outliers are, we may want to remove them from our analysis because there may be bots to remove or there may be different type of users. And we want to have an analysis that's more precise and we want to understand some of those things. So in that kind of case, this kind of an exploration of the data, right? You kind of... You do a query, you look at the results, you transform your query, you may be selecting a subset of your data for doing more analysis. And so it's very different from a streaming system where, okay, you know exactly what you want to compute all the time in a very low latency. And you, you, you may have defined KPIs for your business, or you may want to use the data to improve features in your product, like you know, typically a recommendation engines are a common data-driven feature. Like we use the data we collect to improve the product. So they're really fundamentally, I think, different things. And I know, you know, some people kind of advocate for everything should move to streaming and so on. 
But I think you use them in different ways. It makes a lot of sense for me that you would want to use both and in different ways. And it makes a lot of sense to me as well that streaming system should more and more capable of doing both streaming and batch and kind of letting you either rerunning, but in a way that abstracts it to the user, right? If you want to change the logic of your streaming job, and restart it in the past, you should not have to rewind the entire stream and read it in order as if it had happened. Like depending on the logic of the job, you can actually have a different plan executed to compute the historical data and make it happen in parallel, right? Depending on typical aggregation, windowing algorithm, don't need to be run in order. You can run in parallel for different period of times in the past, which is exactly how a batch processing job works. Zooming out to the application level, you worked at WeWork for a little more than two years, from 2017 to 2020. And WeWork is a company that has basically a bottomless amount of data that it could collect. If you think about 2017 through 2020, WeWork's how popular they were, you know, especially pre-pandemic, how much action there was going on in it, all the telemetry data that could be collected. So walking into WeWork, I assume their data engineering was not very well developed in 2017. What did you do over those two years? What was your strategy to grapple with the scale of that data? Yeah, so that's interesting. So before WeWork, I was very much like at Twitter and Dreamio later, I was very much drilling into query engines and like going deeper in this area. So it's kind of more vertical growth in that space. And then when I joined WeWork, I joined as the architect for the data platform. So it's kind of more like broader scope. And at the time, WeWork was relatively, had a relatively small data engineering team. It was very much centered around the data warehouse. So doing SQL queries, SQL transformation, ingesting the production data into a warehouse and building around it. And there were a lot of ambition at the time about how we understand our people are using the space, right? So when you use a website, of course, when you use Facebook, whatever you click on, Facebook knows everything you click on, everything you look at, because everything goes through your computer. Where you're in a physical space, it's a little more different, right? So as part of WeWork, and you know, I don't want to misrepresent some of the, so it's kind of, you know, take it with a grain of salt, I was just one participant in all of that. But as part of WeWork, there was a avian phases of how do we algorithmically improve the layout of the buildings, right? And it's kind of, WeWork was doubling every year. It's like at the end of the year, they had more, twice as many buildings, if not more, than they had to start with. And so because there was a heavy emphasis on how do we algorithmically improve the design of the space, right? It's kind of, and they published a few papers about, you know, layout algorithms and how we improve this. How many two people offices, how many five people offices, how many 10 people offices, so how do we lay them out? And so the goal was also, how do we collect data? How the space is used? while also respecting privacy of our users? You know, like obviously on social media, one of the problems is, Facebook or other social media, they know everything you're doing there and they know who you talk to, uh, what you talk about and everything. And so in a physical space, 
you want to be able to understand how people are using the space with preserving their privacy. And so you want to collect data about you know, how meeting rooms are used, how common space is used, and so on. And so during this hyper-growth phase, it was really about how do we enable the data collection, the processing, all the things people want to be able to do. And so not it was not only using a data warehouse and building metrics or analysis, but also enabling all those things, right? So typically involve like stream processing. How do we ingest data, especially IoT data, like you have IoT devices that collect information about the space in various physical location. How you ingest that streaming data, how you archive it, you know, there's the data in motion versus data trust notion. How you consume, you do streaming transformation for all the real-time aspect you were talking about. How we do batch processing. And in the batch processing, you have all the areas of more analysis-oriented, you know, ETL or the transformation for building a model for enabling analysis, metrics, and understanding the space. And then there's all the machine learning-oriented processing that feed into how do we improve the layout algorithms by learning how people are using the space? How do we improve pricing for the rent of an office space and so on? And so building all those things. So for those two years, we spent time enabling all those other use cases, not just SQL on the warehouse, but the collection, stream processing, batch processing, BI on top of that, and making sure everything works together. So that was a process of What's the best, like, obviously, let's not build everything in-house. So it's kind of picking the best open source project or the best project for everything, which led us to, you know, pick Kafka for ingestion, Airflow for scheduling, looking at Spark and Flink for batch streaming processing, Snowflake for the warehouse, and uh, Apache Iceberg for the storage address. So really, and making sure we have schemas, we have good contracts, we enable... In a modern company, data-driven company, like every team in the organization uses data in one way or another. So you have a lot of dependencies between team. And so that led us to the one piece that was missing, right? So kind of taking the best of breed open source project in that space. And in our opinion, one piece that was missing is this open source environment. And that led us to creating Marquez as an open source project was the understanding of the data management, understanding of metadata, having somewhere where you understand all the data sets that exist, all the jobs that exist that transform, like read data set, produce data set, all those transformations, and understand the lineage graph on how they all depend on each other. So that was really the sub process of creating markets, right? Because I don't think the Hadoop ecosystem had already produce something that would allow that. And that was really critical. You know, when you have many teams that consume and produce data and they depend on each other, everything becomes brittle. And like people are worried about changing anything because every time they change something, they break something. And they may not even know that the thing is broken before a week or someone complains that something's broken. And because people have very little visibility like a few hops removed from what they're doing, right? Like they may be reading a data set, but they don't know who's producing it. Or they might be producing data, but they don't know who's consuming it. Or they may know the first level, but they don't know how many things downstream from them are depending on it. So this kind of uh, the sad process. So for two years, yeah, we built the 
all the data platform enabling all those use casing like streaming, batch processing, you know, machine learning, and enabling this organization that was doubling every year and so really fast pace uh, grows. And you know, it didn't end the way we wish it would. But uh, WeWork is still around and it's still kicking. So, you know, I don't think this story is, uh, we heard the end of that story yet. I actually agree with you. So I saw the WeWork documentary and I think a lot of people walked away from that with a negative view of the company. I actually walked away with a very positive view of the company. And I actually see a lot, I still see a lot of potential for the company. Like given how much work is changing, I don't think we really know where things are going. I don't envy the teams responsible for having to uh, unwind some of the real estate commitments that they have, but obviously the core brand is still really strong. I don't know. I, I like the founder. I thought he was like really charismatic. Like, I, you know, if you want to be following somebody who's like basically trying to take over the world of commercial real estate, you want this guy that looks like Jesus and, and sort of sounds like Jesus. Like that's the kind of person you want in charge, but quite a personality. Any thoughts on leadership from, or you don't, you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. I know we, we were talking about data, but I, I'm just curious as somebody who had a firsthand view. So I haven't watched the documentary yet. I'll definitely watch it. So I think, you know, the WeWork product is great. And I think from a business perspective, they were building, doubling the number of buildings every year and they were filling them, right? Like the, the reason they were doing that is there was demand from it. So, of course, the tactic is very high risk, right? Because the investment is so important. And you know, when you start a new building, you start pouring money in the construction, or like the interior design and like implementing it. But you don't make any money on it until you open it. So, of course, WeWork was losing vast amounts of money every year because they add more buildings in constructions than they had building and making money. And I think, you know, in the end, I'm not going to comment on the leadership, but in the end, the thing blew up because this strategy was working as long as money was being poured in the company, right? And at some point, if there was not the same amount of funding coming in, you would need to slow down that growth to allow uh, for the company to be self-sufficient. I think it's kind of a risky thing. It's like being always on the edge where there's a high risk of stumbling, which is what happened, right? Because it's kind of what you look at. But, you know, looking back, you would think, oh, in that situation, with all those buildings that were in construction, you know, at the time we work stopped starting a new project, basically with a failed IPO, but they still have a lot of momentum, lots of inertia in all the projects that were ongoing. And the pandemic hit not that long after that. And one thing to recognize, and they're still around. So I think the business is kind of sound. The product is awesome. Yeah, of course, I think leadership, there's a value in always running forward really fast. The problem is if there are unexpected obstacles in the way. Okay, look, we're going to get to Datakin because I want to talk about that. But just, just a little bit more on, the, on this point, because you said about this, like, okay, you can't do the rework thing, at least in the way that they were doing it. But there is some science around capacity planning. Like, 
clearly were able to build out data centers in a sustainable way for like somehow, I have no idea how they do it, but somehow there's always enough capacity at AWS. I don't understand where were the people who were doing like capacity planning in a sustainable way? Like how did, I guess if you just have leadership that's ahead of their skis, literally everybody else in the company is going to get ahead of their skis too. Oh, well, that's what leadership is for, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if the message is don't worry, keep writing, you know, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. But obviously, anyway. in the end, you know, they kind of like, oh, yeah, we're going to IPO and, you know, this is where the funding is coming and this didn't work. So, yeah, it's a, it's just high risk situation that yeah. didn't work out. So. Yeah. I mean, it leads in some way. It leads to Dedekind, right? Like because okay, great. Take because us there. <laughs> the fact this failed IPO and the fact that yeah, so definitely the priority of the company was was not on high growth anymore, and a lot of the vision had to be scaled down, and maybe there was not so much need for a lot of the stuff we built over those two years. It's kind of created this situation where like okay, like what do we do next, right? So we started Marquez because we very much wanted to be not building proprietary stuff, but be part of this data ecosystem, like used to be Hadoop ecosystem, but I think people use Hadoop less nowadays, but there was a missing piece. So really like starting an open source project and starting Marquez was our way to say, well, okay, this is the missing block. And the only way we know of like improving the ecosystem is contributing to it, right? It's kind of, you have two ways, right? You can build things in-house on top of open source, or you can start contributing project or contributing to existing open source projects. And the advantage of contributing those things as open source is they become part of the ecosystem. And, you know, if you look at Parquet, for example, or Apache Arrow that we started at Dremio, they really became part of the ecosystem to a point like, you know, nowadays, Parquet is pretty much everywhere. You know, you can read-write Parquet from BigQuery. You can do that from uh, Snowflake. I think BigQuery returns result set in arrow format if you want. And all of those things would not have been possible if Parquet had been a Twitter proprietary fund format, right? We would have had to integrate everything. And so really making it open source, collaborating with Cladera on it, was really a goal of, oh, this should be part of the ecosystem. And if you manage to bootstrap an open source project like this, it really takes a life of its own. And that's the value of not just making things open source, but adding them, like donating them to a foundation, right? It's really about saying, look, this open source project, it is owned by the community. It's driven by the community. It's not owned by an entity in particular. It's not owned by an individual. It's really something we own collectively. And the more people contribute to it, the more valuable it is, right? Or more people integrate with it, the more valuable it is. So Parquet became more valuable. The more projects started to be able to read and write to it. And similarly, Arrow follows the same dynamic and Marquez and Open Lineage follows that same logic, right? So we started with Marquez at WeWork and making it open source because we wanted to enable the same ecosystem, right? It's like Marquez is the kind of project that will become more valuable 
the more people integrate with it, the more it's used, the more it's adopted. And that's also what led to the birth of open lineage because Marquez has two parts. One part is the ingestion of lineage, how we collect lineage. And the second part is how do we store it and analyze it and be able to navigate it. And so that's where we started open lineage because the conclusion was, well, the standardization of lineage and just the collection, being able to emit and collect lineage is the most widely applicable part of that project. So spinning off open lineage is a way to say, look, this is the most widely applicable piece. This is really something that will benefit the ecosystem because there's one big gap of understanding lineage and how we collect it. And there's many different use cases for using lineage. People care about governance, compliance, from a compliance perspective, like, oh, where is my user private data going? Like, I need lineage to understand that. From, there's like lots of banking regulations where like, you need to be able to prove that the result of the transactions you're computing are this are derived entirely from the data you're collecting about what the transaction are doing. So really collecting lineage and proving that the data flows the way it should is really important. There are operations and uh, data pipelines, observability, all the, those aspects of how we do data ops properly, how do we operate our data pipelines properly, also requires lineage to understand how things depend on each other. And so there are all those use cases that may spawn different tools for solving them, but they all need collection of lineage. And so we started Open Lineage the same way we started Apache Arrow back when I was at Dremio. It's like, look, we're considering there's this missing piece, right? We ought to have a standard way to collect lineage and for everything to expose their lineage, whether it's a data warehouse like Snowflake or BigQuery or whether it's Spark or whether it's Flink or it's a streaming system or a batch system, they should all expose their lineage in a standard way. And so we reach out to a bunch of people in that community, right? Like from all that work in the Parquet community in the Arrow community and others, you keep meeting the same people, the people who care about open source, the people who care about building this great ecosystem. And 90% of the people we talked to were like, yes, we need this standardization of lineage. Why don't we have that already? How do we make this happen? Right? And so that's how you start a project like that. All you need is kind of planting a seed. We need to get the project started so it happens. The reason we don't have it already is because we didn't put the effort of getting together and starting building that, All right? So that's kind of how we started Open Lineage last year, as spinning it off out of Marquez. And so Open Lineage and the name is really meant to draw the parallel with Open Telemetry. Open Telemetry is how you collect traces and metrics in the service world. Open Telemetry is part of the CNCF. And Open Lineage is part of the LFAI and data, which is the other Linux sub-foundation. You know, you have the Linux foundation under it. You have the CNCF for the cloud Kubernetes stuff. And you also have the LFAI and data, which is the other Linux foundation sub-foundation for all things machine learning and data. And so really the Open Lineage is the open telemetry for data pipelines. It enables collecting that lineage in a standard way, understanding this ecosystem and creating this 
observability of everything that happens in your data platform. All right. So lineage, this is something that people have wanted for a pretty long time. And the use case I always think about with lineage is, let's say you're building a big data system that calculates whether or not somebody can get a consumer loan. If you want to offer people loans based on data science, you want to be able to have a understandable history of how you arrived at that decision. Lineage gives you the language and the data to express what calculations led to a certain decision. Am I giving a reasonable description of lineage or a reasonable example of lineage? Yes. So if we look at it, so I mean, and this applies, you know, you're talking about giving loans and the thing, you know, if you're doing a research on COVID and uh, the efficiency of which vaccines works the best on how the this is spreading or things like that, this is also similar use cases. You know, people can use data to optimize ads or they can use data to save uh, lives as well. I think we tend to give examples of like the very commercial aspects, but it's kind of, there are lots of different ways we use it. And so if we look at it in a kind of meta way, those things become complex. You know, we, we talked about big data and I think for a long time, people focused on big data. How do we make things scalable? How do we process more and more data efficiently? But actually another big problem of big data it's not necessarily just the sheer volume of data. It's how many different data sets we have, how many different transformations, how many different people are involved in transforming that data. And so if you look at lineage, it's not just someone getting data in and doing an analysis and producing a report, right? The fact is, is there are many sources of data that are being used. And then there's some kind of first levels of transformation that adapted to kind of making it better to analyze. And maybe another level is kind of combining data set with another one, right? You may be merging from different data sources. And then there's would be other levels of transformation that do, you know, anomaly detection, removing outliers, removing bad data. There's kind of a lot of complexity and a lot of layers, many layers of transformation before someone actually starts using the data for doing analysis. And maybe they're making a decision on approving a loan, or maybe they're making an analysis to understand how a virus is spreading. But there's lots of complexity and all those things are constantly changing, right? Like when you use a web product and they new features are rolled out or new things are happening, the way data is collected is always constantly changing. All those things evolve all the time, which makes all those dependencies and all those complex layers potentially prone to breakage, right? Like someone changed something, it broke something down the line. And if you don't have a clear understanding of that lineage, it creates problems. So from an operation perspective, you may have your data is actually hard to trust because it might be broken, it might be wrong, like some logic has changed and you don't know if the resulting data is still correct or it might be delayed and you have to do your analysis on stale data. And from other perspective, you know, if you think, if you go back to the privacy use cases, 
Nowadays, we have better regulation with GDPR and CCPA of, well, companies ought to know where their user data is going. And they used to not to, right? Like when GDPR first came out, like companies were like, oh, we need to know where our user data we're collecting is going in all our systems. And they realize that they don't, right? Like because the way this works is very organic. People need data for analysis. They start reading from somewhere. And if you don't draw a map of all the dependencies of what reads what for what purpose, then you don't necessarily know at a macro level where the user private data is going. And so you cannot guarantee that you're not using the data for a purpose that was not intended by the user to start with, right? Which ends with having much better system. Like when you use a social media, now you can select to opt out of certain advertising. You can opt out of a bunch of things. And that's made possible because there's a clear understanding of data lineage, right? Like, oh, we capture in a programmatic way the user intent. We capture where the data is going. We capture the purpose of why it's used by a specific system, right? Like, so obviously Amazon can use your address to send you packages, but they're not allowed to use your address for crossing your data with something else unless you've approved certain usage, right? Like if they're using it for their purpose, they kind of have to specifically express it in the terms and condition, right? That's kind of the intent of collecting the data is important. And if the user opted out of certain things, then they need to respect that. So it's kind of lineage is used in, it's a lot about understanding how those layers are laid out and, you know, how to make sure, you know, you could be looking at your KPIs at the company and you want to understand how this metric is actually produced from the data that's collected upstream, like understanding all those layers of transformation. It may be about understanding where your user private data is going and making sure you use it appropriately. It could be about making sure that when you push a change to one of those transformations, you're not breaking downstream analysis or downstream dashboards. So there's lots, lots of those different use cases for understanding lineage. It's really about having a Google map for your data pipelines. Okay, we got five minutes. We haven't really talked about Dedekind. You've referred to two open source projects, Marquez and Open Lineage. Marquez gathers metadata about a data ecosystem. Open Lineage gives you standardized lineage across your lineage and metadata. I can see how these two would be connected. I can also see how these two would be worth productizing. So... Give me the pitch for how Datakin utilizes these open source projects as quickly as possible. Yes. So Open Lineage is about standardizing the collection of lineage like across the data ecosystem. Anything you would be using, it would have lineage exposed in a standard way. Marquez is the reference implementation that allows you storing this lineage and versioning it and keeping track of all the changes. Datakin is a tool that builds on top of that, right? So the same data that is being collected through Open Lineage and Marquez, you can use in Datakin to specifically improve your data pipelines operations, right? So this is about how do you trust your data? How you make sure your data is updated timely in a reliable way, 
right? So that again is for you know we talked about a bunch of use cases like compliance, operation, and all of that. So Datakin is specifically focusing on how do I trust my data? First, it's building a map of the territory so you understand your dependencies. What are my upstream dependencies? If this dashboard is really important and there should be someone on call for it, then every single the dependency upstream, there should be someone on call for it. Like understanding all those layers of transformation are really critical to make that very important dashboard or very important machine learning job always running. The other one is really understanding upstream, downstream, when I change something, what other things potentially are impacted. The second level is to really be able to troubleshoot very quickly when there's a problem. If my data is late, uh, my data is wrong, being able to detect it and very quickly troubleshoot the root cause of the problem. Because the main thing you need once you know you have a data quality issue or your data set is not being updated or it's showing up later and later every day is to understand lineage so that you can find the root cause. Like lineage is the key to understanding the root cause of the problem. When you have data quality issues, they come from upstream. Some other data set has changed or some other logic upstream has changed, which led to that data quality issue in the data set you really care about. And so whether it's data showing up on time or a data quality issue, you need lineage information to really quickly troubleshoot those problems. And today, it's really hard for people, right? It takes weeks sometimes to find the root cause of why we have a data quality issues. Where is this distribution skewed all suddenly? Or why are things getting slower over time? And so this is really one aspect we're doing, like, you know, building the map of the territory, understanding your dependencies, troubleshooting problem, finding the root cause really quickly. And third is obviously also preventing issues, right? So from an operation perspective, you know, there's lots of, in many ways, the service world is a lot more mature than the data world. Like people talk about SLOs, mean time to recovery, how we track those metrics. And so it's very much about applying those same principles to the data world, how you make sure your data shows up on time and it's correct and you can trust it. And if there's a problem, you know that this is a problem and it's not like you don't know when there's a problem or not. And really building trust in data, making it reliable. And whether it's for your KPIs and your very important dashboards or whether you're using it for machine learning and improving your product or recommendation engine and all of that, things that really needs to be always working. Okay, that sounds very appealing. I wish we had more time. Julian, it's always a pleasure. I recommend anybody who has these kinds of data problems to check out Datakin. Thank you.